So we've been in this series for the past couple of weeks. This is week 14. We are on Matthew chapter 14. They just kind of got synchronized a few weeks ago, and we're rolling with it. So this is the 14th week that we've been in this series where we've just been working through the book of Matthew. But we haven't just been reading the book of Matthew because the book of Matthew is a book that we think we should read. We're reading the book of Matthew because Matthew is one of the guys who knew Jesus really well. He's one of the guys who walked with Jesus for a long period of time. He's one of the guys who experienced firsthand when no one else would show him grace, Jesus showed him grace. And so Matthew has a unique perspective on the life of Jesus that no one else has. Perfect. You know, specifically, Matthew's perspective involves the idea that Matthew knew the Jewish law really, really well. As a tax collector, Matthew had really good relationships with scribes. And scribes, one of their main jobs was to write things down, but one of the main ways they applied that job was to copy scripture texts. And so Matthew knew scribes. He had good relationships with scribes. And so even though he was a tax collector, he knew a lot of details about the Old Testament. And as we've covered so far in Matthew, he quotes the Old Testament left and right all over the place, even quoting passages from the Old Testament that seem absolutely obscure, obscure details that the number 14 means the name David and Jesus is somehow a triple David. That's going back to chapter one. Matthew, as we've said, has been writing to super Jews to proclaim that Jesus is the king of all kings, the king better than all other kings. And so we've been studying it because the thing is, when you read the book of Matthew, you don't see a picture of a king. You don't ever see Jesus putting on royal robes and and wearing a a fancy, beautiful, diamond, gold-encrusted crown. You don't see Jesus ever doing any of the trappings of king-type stuff. Instead, you see a king who is regularly not fighting battles against enemies. Instead, he is opening arms to enemies. He is showing love to people he shouldn't necessarily show love to, according to our value system. Jesus is doing all the things that we wouldn't expect and a lot of things we don't even want out of a king. And so we've been asking the question time and time again, can you follow a king who doesn't do the things you expect? expect a king to do? Can you follow a king who doesn't fight your battles? Or last week, we asked it directly, can you follow, is it even worth following a king like this for a kingdom like this? But today, today we're going to shift the question just a little bit, and we're going to ask the deeper, bigger question. Who is this king in the first place? Who is Jesus? What is his identity that we need to understand who he is? And it begins in Matthew chapter 14 with some, with some backstory. What Matthew does in chapter 14 is really fascinating. First of all, we're going to see three stories. But before we get the first story in this set, Matthew is going to give us a very brief two-line introduction. And the two-line introduction is not part of the rest of the story. The rest of the story is chronological. There's a thing that happens, and then there's a thing that happens, and then there's a thing that happens. And those things happen, bum, bum, bum. But the thing that happens at the beginning is completely out of time sequence. And the only reason Matthew puts it there is because he wants us to be asking this question by the time we start looking at the stories. Okay, so here we go. Verse 1. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. This is not Herod the Great. This is Herod's son, Antipas. And he was called the Tetrarch, not the king, because there were four kings. When Herod the Great died, they split his kingdom up into four different spots, and Herod Antipas got one little tiny piece of it. So he's not even really a king, but he really wants to pretend he's a king. 
Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. So here's the thing. From the very beginning of this chapter, we get the question of what is the, what is the real identity of Jesus? Who is Jesus for real and how does he get his powers? When I was younger, I thought this was a really stupid question, right? Because it's a stupid question because Jesus and John were both alive at the same time. John baptized Jesus, if you remember. And so that means Jesus can't be the reincarnated version of John because they were both alive at the same time. It never made sense to me. But they believed back then that in order for you to have supernatural spiritual power, you could be possessed by a supernatural spiritual being. In fact, Herod seems to be indicating here that Jesus was just a normal dude until John came back to life and then infested Jesus' body, and then it was John's power at work through Jesus' body. That's what Herod was thinking. Because Herod doesn't know any better, any better. He doesn't know any of the details. He hasn't been paying attention. But the question you should be asking right now is really two of them. Question number one Well, who is Jesus really? Where did he get his power? Asking the same question Herod is asking. But the second question you should be asking is, wait a minute, wait a minute. What happened to John? He's dead? Last time we saw John, he was in prison. But now we are told that he's dead. And Matthew gives us that introduction because he is ready to begin telling us the three stories that we need to see in order so that we get the full picture of what's going on. Here, verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. I would love to spend a lot of time in uh, this little passage here and analyze with you some of the idiosyncrasies of Herod and the things that are going on around him. I don't have time to do that, so I'll just give you the, pr- the quick synopsis because I want to get to the end of this story. It's really great the farther we get, but I want to give you the quick synopsis. Herod was, had a brother, and his brother's name was Philip, and Philip had a wife, and her name was Herodias. But Herodias didn't want to be the wife of brother Philip because brother Philip wasn't a king, and Herod was trying to be a king. And so Herodias did whatever it is that Herodias needed to do to become Herod's next you know, wife or whatever. I don't know exactly the story. All I know is when I read this story, Herod does not look to me like the guy who would steal his brother's wife. But Herodias does look like the woman who would switch husbands because one of them has more power than the other one. In fact, I find it interesting that her name is Herodias, which basically means I belong to Herod. Did she change her name so that she could then, you know, indicate to Herod that she wanted to be with this guy? Listen, we don't really know all of the details of the story, but definitely we see her as a manipulative person and Herod going along with whatever the people around him push him into. In fact, he wanted to kill John, right? Because John kept saying, you shouldn't have your brother's wife. And he's like, I don't want to be embarrassed like this. And so he throws John into prison. He wants to kill John, but he's afraid of the people. Herod doesn't do anything on his own. Pay attention to the rest of this story. You'll see Herod doesn't do anything on his own. He only does what he thinks makes the most political sense at the time for him to do. Keep going. It says, verse 6, On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. 
which by the way, if you are the king of a pagan thing back then, and some girl is dancing for you on your birthday in front of a whole bunch of relatively drunk guests, my assumption is that they were not pleased with the technical skill in her dancing, but might have been pleased with some other aspect of her dancing that made them want to do whatever it is she wanted them to do. And so Herod promises her whatever it is she wants, he will make happen. Verse 8, prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her requests be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Now, of course, that's a gruesome story. It's a sad and gruesome story. And I would love to get into the details, like I said, but I only have time to acknowledge just a couple things. One, you've got to realize that John was a man of integrity, right? He was a man, he knew the threats were involved. He knew the threat of speaking out against the king, against the person in power. He was a man of integrity. He knew that Herod would do whatever it took to maintain his political power. Because Herod is only motivated by his politics, right? Only motivated by his own pride, his own politics, not policies or people, just those sorts of things. He only cares about what the people around him need to see so that they continue to give him more power. John is a man of integrity. Herod is a man of politics and pride. And that's it. In the end result, John has his head put on a platter and Herod gets all this notoriety from Herodias and the daughter and the people around. But there's one thing that John had that Herod didn't have. Read the next verse. It says this, John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. What John had is he had people who loved him. They were willing to put themselves at risk to come to Herod and say, we would like his body. We're the people who supported John. We're the people who loved John. We're the people who did what John advised us to do. And we're admitting that to you, the guy who just killed John. Can we have his body? They were taking a risk, but they loved John so much that they went, they got his body, they buried it. But then you notice they told Jesus. I imagine this was painful for Jesus. Jesus was John's biological cousin. His mother, Mary, was related to Elizabeth, who was the mother of John. So we don't know exactly the family tree relationship, but we know they were cousin-ish. They were related to each other. They knew each other. And they were both born in the same year, so they were both the same age. And so as a result, they both probably had a fairly good relationship with each other. They knew each other, and we know that because when Jesus shows up to be baptized by John, John says, no, 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 you baptize me, not me baptize you. John knew Jesus well enough to know who Jesus was and how good Jesus was and why Jesus didn't need to be baptized, but John certainly did. All of that stuff, I imagine this was hard for Jesus. Look what happens. Verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place, which is exactly what you and I would do. I need some alone time. I got to spend some time mourning and crying over this loss. Hearing of this, 
The crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. You picture this in your mind. The first story is a story of John being killed, which is tragic. It's a story of John being killed at the hands of Herod, and there's all a bunch of stuff that goes along with that. But the story that, that you need to see that leads us into story number two and then story number three is Jesus is trying to get some alone time so he can have some mourning over his brother, his cousin, his fellow in ministry, John, who's just been brutally murdered. He is in pain. And he sees this crowd of people who have traveled on foot to catch up with him wherever he was. And it says he has compassion on them. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a time of pain and someone bothers me, my response to them is usually one of irritation. My response to them is usually one of bother. I'm in the middle of something, don't bother me. I'm in the middle of something, even if you have a need, let me finish my own stuff. I'm feeling bad, don't ask me to help you out. That's the way I feel. And maybe you've been in that moment. You know, we actually have terms for this. If the problem you're dealing with is being hungry and someone comes up to you, you all of a sudden become hangry. You know what I'm saying? We all have this sort of, this sort of thing where we give ourselves the excuse to be jerks just because something else in our life isn't going right. And I would give Jesus a pass if he had been a jerk to these people. I would have given Jesus a pass if he had said to these people, listen, I'm really, really having a bad day. Can you come back tomorrow? I would have given Jesus a pass and I wouldn't have blamed him at all. But Jesus has compassion on them. And he heals their sick of a large crowd. That tells me from the very beginning of this whole chapter that Jesus has an unstoppable form of compassion. Jesus has an unstoppable compassion. Himself, he would want to be alone. Jesus isn't, he's he's not some... A kind of person who never feels like you and I feel. He feels just like we feel. And he has just the same desires as you and I do to have some alone time now and then. And he wants it. He needs it. But he sees the crowd and has compassion. Nothing can stop his compassion. It's unstoppable. Let's keep going, though, because this leads into the next story. Verse 15. As evening approached... The disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. (laughs) We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is interesting. The evening is coming, but the crowds are still there. Do you know what that means? If the crowds are still there, that means there's still a crowd of people who haven't yet been healed. And it also means that Jesus is still healing. 
However long this thing took, however long it was, Jesus didn't stop. He just kept healing. And the disciples are like, it's late. Send the people away. Now Jesus has two reasons to get rid of the people. He wants some alone time, remember? He wants some private, solitary time. But number two, now the people need to go get some food because it's late in the day. They've been there all day long. They need to go somewhere and get something to eat. Jesus has two really good reasons to send the people away. There's just one problem. He's not done healing. There's just one problem. Maybe he's also teaching along the way, and he's not done teaching. And so he says to the disciples, the people don't need to go away. Go ahead and you give them something. And the disciples are like, we don't have anything. And Jesus says, well, bring me what you do have because you don't have nothing. You have something. And they bring him this. And he prays and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples. And I'd love to spend a lot of time talking about this, about how the miracle is actually done in the hands of the disciples, right? Because if there are 5,000 people and only 12 disciples... The food did not multiply when Jesus gave it to the disciples, right? Jesus can't give 12 men enough food for 5,000 men plus their women and children. The only way this miracle works is if the multiplication happens after it hits the disciples' hands. And I'd love to spend a lot of time talking about how the disciples are the ones who are actually out there with their hands on the miracle as the miracle is being done. The problem is I don't have time for that one because there's something else we need to talk about. You have to realize that what is happening here is a Moses-level event. Remember Moses, he was leading the people in the wilderness. The people had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then Moses leads them out into the wilderness and and there he is in the wilderness and, and the people are hungry and they're worried and they're like, Moses, give us something to eat. And Moses prays and he asks God and all of a sudden a whole bunch of quail come in and they have meat. And then every morning manna shows up, this little bread kind of that shows up on the ground as a miracle from heaven. Moses prayed and now they have manna and they have meat It's an amazing thing. Jesus is doing a Moses-level event, except for one thing. You see, Moses prayed and God made the manna show up. Moses prayed and God brought the quail in. Jesus here, he prays and then he's the one who hands the stuff out and initiates this mass multiplication of food. This isn't a Moses-level event. This is a creation-level event. This is, a, this is an event where Jesus takes effectively nothing and turns it into something amazing. Oh, and don't get me wrong. This isn't one of those situations where you could re-explain it in some sort of naturalistic terms. You know, let's just say that everybody had a little bit of food. And then when Jesus began to share his lunch, everybody else was motivated to share their lunch. And as a result, everybody had a little bit. And everybody had just enough so that they could claim they were full. And someone later on through the centuries could label this a miracle of some miraculous, you know, legendary miracle proportions. Except for one minor detail. The disciples collect 12 basketfuls of food afterwards. Okay? So they didn't start with 12 baskets. They ended with 12 baskets. They started worried that people needed food, so that means the people didn't obviously have very much food. Maybe some of them were hiding a cliff bar in their pocket or something. I don't know. But they certainly didn't have enough food for them all to be satisfied so much that the leftovers from 5,000 people fill 12 baskets. We just have to be clear about something. There is no way for 5,000 people 
to eat their fill of the food they themselves brought back then in that culture and have a whole bunch left over. I rarely pack a lunch without intending to eat the whole darn thing. When I pack a lunch, it is my intent to consume every last morsel of it. Now, when I get a box lunch at like a conference or something, they always give you too much. Or when I order at a restaurant, they always give you too much. But when I pack my own lunch, my intention is to eat the whole thing. I'm not going to have so much left over that I can share and also have leftovers. What Jesus does here is a creation-level event. From nothing... Lots. That puts Jesus in the category of someone who has unimaginable power. Jesus doesn't just have unstoppable compassion. He also has unimaginable power. And when you look at a guy who can take five loaves and two fish and turn it into enough food for 5,000 men and their families, plus... The 12 disciples originally. I mean, we are talking about something almost magical. Unimaginable power. But that's not all the power. Because, let's look at verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up. So he does dismiss the crowd, right? He does eventually say to the crowd, it's time for you to go home. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So here's Jesus. He's finally getting his alone time. He's finally getting some time for him to just be alone with his heavenly father, spending some time in prayer. Now, of course, I would love to make the point about how if Jesus needed to spend some time in prayer with his heavenly father, then certainly you need to spend some time in prayer with your heavenly father. And I could make the point that Jesus was going through a hard day with a whole lot of work and effort, and he's exhausted, and he's emotionally sad. And I could, I could make the point that when you're in that place, you also need to spend time with God. I could, I could make some of these spiritual points, but there's, I don't have time for all of that because there's something else that's going on here that I desperately need you to see. Jesus finally got his alone time, but Jesus sent his disciples to the middle of the Sea of Galilee where they worked and worked and worked all night to get to the other side and could not. I did a little bit of research about the Sea of Galilee. It's, um, it takes an average boat from that era, from the first century. It would have taken them between three and six hours to cross the Sea of Galilee. Depending on where you're crossing, of course, whether you're going north to south or east to west, 
Uh, Jesus was somewhere on the southern edge of the Sea of Galilee, and he was sending the people somewhere to the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the longest trek, going from the south to the north. Uh, But still, going from the south to the north, it should only take maybe three hours, maybe six hours, if the winds are favorable. If the winds are not favorable, you might as well never even leave. You might as well just stay there on shore and spend the night. But here's the thing. If you look at the words at the beginning of this little section, verse 22, where it says, Jesus made the disciples. Did you see that? Jesus made the disciples. The Greek word behind made is forceful. Jesus commanded and insisted that they leave at that moment. Without any hesitation, Jesus forced them to leave. And that means that Jesus forced them into the middle of the lake with the wind against them, with no hope of making it to the other side. My question to you is this. Does that sound compassionate? I said before that Jesus had unstoppable compassion, and yet now he seems to be a little insensitive with his own disciples. Come on, Jesus, just let us stay here for the night. We won't bother you. We'll send the crowd away. You can have an extra hour up on the mountain because we'll deal with the crowd. We'll send them away, and then we'll stay at the bottom of the mountain. You can go up to the top of the mountain. No, get in the boat. Well, Jesus, come on. The, the wind is picking up. It's a, it's a bad night for us to be sailing. We re- we're going to have to row the whole way. And when we're rowing, we're even slower. And so, Jesus, it's going to take us all night. Get in the boat. And so Jesus forces them. They get in the boat. And I just get this picture that I kind of wonder, whatever happened to Jesus and his compassion? And as long as we're on the topic, what about John for crying out loud? If Jesus has unimaginable power, if he has creation-level power, then why in the world did John get killed? Why didn't Jesus save John from the dungeon? Why didn't Jesus do do something to stop Herod from being so stupid? Here's the weird thing. From this story, you might get the picture that Jesus is compassionate with some people, But with the people he really loves, the compassion goes out the window. With the people who are really close to him, the compassion goes out the window. And maybe you're in that place. Maybe you feel a little bit like that. That sometimes Jesus does nice things for all these people around you who don't deserve it, but you've been slaving and you've been working and you've been investing and you've been putting in all this time and you've been reading your Bible and you've been going to church and yet you're not experiencing any of the same kind of privileges that these other people seem to be experiencing. And maybe you're wondering, Jesus, whatever happened to your compassion in my life? And listen, I can't explain to you all of the answers here. I can't give you all of the details for how I know Jesus can still be a God of compassion even though he's sending his disciples to this really difficult night and he allowed John to die. There there are lots of questions that we don't know. We do know some answers. We know one answer is that Jesus told John specifically, by the way, John, I can raise the dead. And so even though John died, Jesus had already promised John that he had the power to raise the dead. And if Jesus can create food out of nothing, then he can probably create life where it used to be life. And so Jesus raising the dead is not a big deal for us. We should be able to understand that he can do that. And so maybe, maybe we need to see Jesus and his compassion through the lens of eternity and say sometimes he's got a bigger thing up his sleeve. But I still look at the disciples and I wonder about these disciples in the midst of their hardship. 
where Jesus could have just let them spend the night on the same side of the lake, but he intentionally forced them out onto the water. What's happening there? Well, I'll tell you. Jesus had something really cool in mind. I mean really, really cool in mind. Let me show you the very next verse. It says this. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, I read that verse, and I remember as a kid seeing the little flannel graph Jesus on the flannel board with the little uh, flannel graph paper waves and the little Jesus kind of that the teacher would sort of move along the, move along the waves. And I remember seeing that, and when I was a kid, I was like, okay, that's really cool. And then the older I got, the more I realized that water doesn't do that. And it never does that. And um, never, ever, ever does that. This, and there, there's another thing going on in this verse. It's not, that Jesus, it's not just that Jesus is walking on the lake. Did you notice he's walking to them? Jesus had told them, go to the other side, right? He told them, get in, go to the other side, I'll meet you over on the other side. But he's not walking to the other side. He's not taking a shortcut across the lake instead of walking around the long way. Instead, this is Jesus in the middle of the night. This is Jesus around between 3 and 6 a.m. We're told it's during the fourth watch of the night in some translations. And, And so here's Jesus. He's heading out. He's not taking a shortcut. He is walking to them. And the only way he can get to the boat in the middle of the lake is by walking on the water. Jesus will do whatever he has to do to get to the people who need his care. This is a symbol of his unstoppable compassion. Here, his disciples in the middle of the sea, they have been struggling all night long. They've been rowing and 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 they're not making very much progress at all. And they are hurt and they are tired and they are exhausted and they have nothing left to give. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm coming to you. And he goes to them because he's got such unstoppable compassion that he will use his unimaginable power to reach out to these guys. And so here's Jesus. He's walking along. He's going to them. They see him, and they freak out. Take a look at what they said. It says, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. That's the question. What kind of guy is this? What kind of man is this? A king who would force these guys out onto the, onto the sea to do something difficult all night long, but then the king who would have the unimaginable power to walk on the water and the unstoppable compassion to go to his disciples rather than just going along past them to get to the destination or something. He's, he's going out to them. What kind of guy is this? He says these words, take courage, it is I. 
Now, granted, these disciples in the boat, they would have heard those words and they would have felt really weird. Number one, of course, there's the, there's the doubt. Can this possibly be the Jesus? Sounds like his voice. We don't actually know if, if it's really his voice because he's walking on the water. That's crazy. He looks like a ghost, maybe. These guys are honestly freaking out. But when Jesus says, it is I, I imagine there's a part of their heart that is like beginning to soften a little bit. And they're like, oh, maybe we're safe. Maybe we're gonna be taken care of. Jesus has come to us this guy who's got a measurable, uh, unimaginable power, maybe he's coming to us. So maybe their heart was a little soft, but I guarantee, I guarantee upon later reflection, something came to their mind. You see, a couple thousand years, about 1,400 years before this moment on the lake, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They'd been in slaves in Egypt for about 400 years They'd been slaves for so long in Egypt that they had no recollection of what their freed life was like. Just minor legends, not knowing if their God was even a real God. Clearly, the Egyptian God was more successful. And so they were just beginning to lose all sense of their identity. They were beginning to lose all sense of who their God was. Moses, this, this interesting fellow who got captured by the queens, by, by the Pharaoh's daughter and and raised in the Pharaoh's palace, this Moses guy who later on discovers he's a Hebrew and doesn't like the the slavery that's going on in his society and he ends up killing a person and running away and he's now living in exile in the desert. That guy, Moses, one day he's in the middle of the desert and he looks around and he sees this bush and it's on fire. But it's not burning up. It's not being consumed. And he, he asks himself the question, what is that thing? What is that all about? And so he goes over to it and he begins looking at the bush and the bush starts talking to him. Out of the flames of the bush, a voice says, I have seen the suffering of my people and I have come down. And Moses said, who are you? He says, what is your name? So that when I go back and tell these people, I know what your name is. And the voice in the burning bush says, I am. At least in Hebrew, it says. You see, when the Old Testament passage of the burning bush got translated into Greek, it's called the Septuagint. The Old Testament in Greek is called the Septuagint. It's the oldest version of the Old Testament that we have. In fact, even though it was originally written in Hebrew, the oldest version that survives to today is in Greek. The Hebrew versions we have were actually, the manuscripts themselves are like a thousand years later. It's a, it's a big thing. I could get into that sometime. But the Greek version is the one that was around at Jesus's day. The Greek version is the one that would have been most commonly read in the synagogues. The Greek version is the one that Matthew quotes from when he's quoting from the Old Testament. And the Greek version doesn't say I am because in Greek your pronouns are built into the verb and you have to say certain things certain ways. And so when you translate the Hebrew phrase I am into Greek, you get the Greek phrase ego a me, which translated is it is I and is exactly what Jesus said from the middle of the lake to his disciples. I have seen the suffering of my people and I have come down. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
Jesus in this moment for his disciples <laughs> is enacting a burning bush moment. There's a man on the water, but he doesn't sink. There's a flame in the bush, but it doesn't burn. Jesus is enacting a salvation, spiritual, burning bush moment to combine unimaginable power with unstoppable compassion. At one moment, right here. Who is this guy? Jesus says, take courage. I am in parentheses, God. Jesus says, take courage, I am, and in parentheses, here for you. Unimaginable power, unstoppable compassion. Let's finish up the story. Verse 28, Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. <laughs> Amazing words. This is the second time Jesus has told Peter, come follow me. And this one is a little bit weirder, I think. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. And for that brief moment, there are two people with creation-level power. For that brief moment, there is a Jesus standing on the water, and there is someone else doing exactly what Jesus does, standing on the water. For that brief moment, there is a Jesus who has said, come, and there is a man who is following him in such a literal fashion that it is beyond the scope of our imagination. But for that brief moment, you have to realize that whatever Jesus can do, someone else can also do as long as they're with him. Whatever Jesus can do, someone else can also do as long as they're with him. But once Peter begins to lose his connection to Jesus, watch what happens. It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? You were standing on the water with me. You were coming to me. We were connected. And then all of a sudden, you allowed yourself to get distracted by something else that wasn't Jesus. And in that moment, the connection is broken. In that moment, the thing that Jesus can do and the thing that you can do are different. But you can do anything Jesus can do as long as you're with. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son. The Son of God phrase has shown up a couple times before in Matthew. Satan said it once. Some demons said it the second time. But now finally some humans have recognized it. And the disciples say, truly you are the Son of God. You are, you're the King beyond anything. And I'm thinking, that's an amazing, amazing story. But don't end it there. Just finish up the last little bit. Jesus says this at the very end when they crossed, or the passage says this, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret 
And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding county, country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let, just, let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. All who touched it were healed. Jesus has such unimaginable power. He's got such unstoppable compassion that it oozes from him. And if you are with him, things just happen that way. You just touch his cloak and it oozes from him. Write this down. Jesus is God with us. With unimaginable power and unstoppable compassion. Now I want to give you something to help you take this home. Because, you know, sometimes you and I are going to doubt his power. Sometimes you and I are going to doubt his compassion. Sometimes you and I are going to be in the prison, awaiting the execution, wondering why Jesus doesn't show up. Sometimes you and I are going to be in the boat, and we are going to be there in the boat wondering why it is that Jesus sent us out there to do this difficult thing, and we're making no progress. Sometimes you are going to be on the water, and things are going amazing, but all of a sudden you start sinking. Sometimes you're just going to be feeling sick and you think, if I could just get near the guy, maybe he would be able to heal me. But sometimes you and I are going to begin to doubt either Jesus' power or his compassion. Sometime we are going to face that. And I just want to point out to you that every one of these stories has one thing really, really important threading through it. And it is the word before. Let me show you what I mean. These people were sick. All of the people, you know, that we see at the very beginning of the story and at the end of the story, they were sick. And you're like, okay, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. God, if you're so good, why do you let people be sick? You know, God, if you're so good, why do you allow these bad things to happen? All of these people were sick before they were healed. These people on the mountain were hungry. Before they were fed. The disciples in the boat were straining at the oars before he calmed the waves. All these disciples were scared by a ghost before they heard the voice of God. He was sinking in the waves before he felt the hand of his. I just want to encourage you. You might be going through a difficult time right now. You might be going through a difficult time lingering from this whole entire past year. You might be encountering a brand new difficult time. Or maybe next month you're going to run into a difficult time. And you're going to be tempted. You're going to wonder. You're going to doubt. You're going to say, Jesus, do you really have unstoppable compassion that affects my life? Jesus, do you really have unimaginable power that can reach into my life? And I just want to encourage you that you are simply in the before. Whatever it is that you're facing. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, it's simply before. The miracle just hasn't happened yet. God sees you. He knows what's going on. He has unimaginable power, unstoppable compassion, and you are just in the moment before he comes down and says, I'm here. Let me invite you to spend this week with that kind of faith. Let me invite you to spend this, kind, this month, this year with that kind of faith. 
that says, no matter what, I follow a God of unimaginable power, unstoppable compassion. And before long, he is going to come down and say, I'm here. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.